Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's a destination. We are finally here. Let's go! What is good, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Destination Dynasty. I am your host, Scott Connor. You can find me on X at Charles Chill FFB. Everything Destination Devi at patreon.com backslash all gas. And then also destinationdevi.com is live. You can find a bunch of tools, additional written content on the website. Join the Patreon for a limited time before it closes. And then if you do not make it there, you can find everything on destinationdevi.com. A couple of housekeeping items before we get started. This Wednesday, Ray and I will be back with Destination Chill. And I've been looking forward to it. We took a week off, but it will be what I think is a different type of episode, talking about just the psychology of trade values. And we've touched on it a little bit in the past with how the new age dynasty player is playing it a lot like redraft, uh, but coming off a article that Ray just put up and just hash it out in terms of the behaviors of how this game is changing and want to center the episode around that. We'll be a month in and want to really kind of dive into that topic and get some interaction with the group. Speaking of interaction after destination chill, there will be an AMA in the Discord if you are part of the Discord. As I said earlier, if you join using the website or the Patreon, you can take part in the Discord AMA that happens after the Destination Chill live on the Destination Devi feed. And Shane Manila, co-host of Trades in 5, Mannequin Chill, he will be the special guest on the AMA this week with Ray talking about whatever comes up. It's an AMA. It's Ask Me Anything, and I can't think of a better co-host to have on there uh, than Shane if you truly want to ask anything that you can. And then finally, War Games. Coming soon, War Games will be breaking down war. Uh, Still, we'll give out some more details as to how that will be launched, but it will be one of the perks or one of the benefits that you get being a Patreon member or being a website member. You'll get access to War Games and more to come soon on how that is going to play out using the War Tool through the first six weeks of the season and what it looks like for this year. And I've already started kind of diving into it a little bit. It's interesting. I'll just say that looking at it, it's kind of what we expect, but it's not. So it'll be fun to break that down, kind of talk about the impact and how it's changing the dynasty game. And then finally for tonight's episode, 
this is one where I always like to do this every single year. And I usually do it around this time of year, month into the season. College football is rampant. We have a lot of great college football content up on the website. And you look forward to the upcoming draft class. And we're in the midst of hype season for college prospects. We're in the midst of the season where teams are starting to really look towards next year. And I'll be honest, one of the things that I do that I've really started doing more meticulously this year uh, is creating a Google sheet or a spreadsheet. And this will lead into the topic tonight, kind of talking about forecasting the market, using some historical data and forecasting the 2024 rookie class, not just from a player perspective. I'm going to talk a little bit about players just because you have to attach player names for people to go, oh yeah, I've seen that. That makes sense that it might be seen as this type of class or you have this type of player in this slot. But aside from the player names, I think the more important factor here is being able to marry the idea of what do the masses feel about a class combined with the players that are in the class. So it's not just how the masses feel, but it's also, are they excited for some individual players? But then you put that together and go, what does the current Dynasty landscape look like? And I'll give an example. Anyone that played Dynasty back when Saquon Barkley came into the league you remember what the buzz or what the hype was on Saquon Barkley, right? People remember how crazy the values were for Saquon. It was at a time where he was a first-round startup pick. And the landscape was totally different. People didn't take quarterbacks as high back then. The quarterback landscape wasn't nearly as good either. So justifiably so, there weren't a lot of quarterbacks that you probably would have said, you know what, I have to take this quarterback in the first round of the startup. But you saw a rookie, a rookie running back. And remember, this was during the peak. This was right after Le'Veon Bell, Todd Gurley, right after Christian McCaffrey came into the league. This was during the peak of what we saw as some premier running back seasons, David Johnson. There were a lot of good running backs back then, and you had a rookie that went in the first round of the startup. Now, part of that was Saquon was the next big thing. He had been since his sophomore year in college. But also the landscape was ripe looking for the next guy that could do all of that. Who can be the next David Johnson? Who can be the next Todd Gurley? The guy that can carry a ton of workload, but also is a really good receiver that can give me 75 plus catches. And largely people write about Saquon, aside from the injuries, they were right about the player. But just remember back, what the market was like back then, a first round running back in a startup, the trade value on Barkley alone was enormous. Picture a running back today going for four first round picks, going for name your price, any receiver in the league, any quarterback in the league, got all my future draft capital for a running back. And just think about how different that is compared to where Bijan was in 2023. Now, I'm not saying Bijan is better than Saquon or Saquon is better than Bijan. Not the point. The point was Bijan relative to his peers and more importantly, relative to the landscape at running back was likely better than Saquon was relative to his peers and more importantly, relative to the running backs that were in the league at the time. But the market was far worse, far, far worse meaning running backs were devalued. Now, that doesn't mean Bijan didn't have good value. 
In fact, he was close to a first-round startup pick by himself. So it really isn't comparing startup prices versus trade value prices. And you kind of felt this year, at least I did, the person with Bijan, they were rewarded that they had just basically been handed a top 15 dynasty asset, a top 12 dynasty asset maybe in some leagues. But the trade steam for that same asset didn't exist. So you dive a little bit deeper and go, what is that? What is the reasoning behind that? And I think I've talked about this a couple times, but I haven't really been able to articulate what my thoughts are on it as well as I think I could or well as I think I should. And part of it is running backs are fragile. We know that. We know running backs don't get as many touches as they used to. We know running backs are scarier assets as they used to due to the injuries but I don't even think it's that. I mean, sure, that contributed to why we got to where we got with running backs, right? That's why people behave the way they do. They're scared that whatever running back they invest in, especially if they invest a bunch of flexibility and capital, they're going to get burned by an injury. And it's fair because we had a bunch of bad running back injuries happen between 2019 and 2022. So it's fair that they would be scared of investing that price on a running back. Not that they're not worth it, but this year it felt a lot more like if you had Bijan, if you had the opportunity to take him, he just wasn't moving. There were only very specific types of deals that could get somebody to move off of him, but there were only certain types of prices that the people that were buying were willing to buy. That was not the same as when Saquon came in. If someone wanted Saquon, they would go and get him, and they had to come correct with a ton of assets. And the price wasn't crazy, but you saw more traction on the trade market with Saquon than you did with Bijan this year. And it's not just the fear of running backs. I think what it also is, is five years later, we have a lot more people that have dove into the data. And they also realize, especially with the running back scoring going down and down and down slowly over the last five years or so, that people acknowledge the process isn't wrong to get a running back difference maker. I think we all can acknowledge that. We can all look at the war data and say, man, if I hit on one of those top two, three, four running backs that not only get a decent number of touches, they don't need to get every touch. They don't need to get 28 touches a game. But give me 19, 20 touches a game, maybe even 16, 17 touches a game. But they're hyper-efficient. They can catch a ton of passes. They can score a lot of touchdowns. They get all of the valuable work in an offense when they're not injured. Think Christian McCaffrey. He does not need 30 touches a game to be great. He can do it on 22, 24. Some games, 19, 21. But the point was, even if you took away some of his touches, he still doesn't need all of those to be as good as he is. But people are acknowledging that the bet is just different. The bet is, man, I really have to hit on one of those top two or three. And in some years, Top two or three doesn't mean the same as what it meant back in 2015, 2016, 2017. So the reality is people have changed their behavior. Even if they acknowledge, yep, if Bijan is that dude, if he does kind of break the mold of the class or even just the generation, maybe the next three or four years, there isn't another guy that's even close to him. Then it would have been worth it if you hit that. But people's processes have evolved to where they're not willing to take that gamble. And part of it is because you can't bail yourself out if it goes wrong as easily on the position. So it was a bigger swing. But what happened was you really didn't see a lot of traction in the market 
for Bijan or even for Gibbs, where Gibbs was going in rookie drafts, 103, 104, 105. You didn't see a lot of traction for Gibbs in leagues either. And it was almost like whoever had the pick was staying there for that pick. Did they love the player? Did they love the player? Jameer Gibbs, not necessarily. But they kind of almost acknowledged that, man, if I have to take Jameer Gibbs here at the 105, I'm better off betting on the outcome that he is a top three or four running back versus even bothering trying to shop the pick. And that was the opposite of what it was back in 2018 during the Bijan season or during the Barkley season. And the Bijan season this year, listen, there are still some leagues where he was extremely highly valued, but I didn't see, at least in almost any of my leagues, I didn't see legitimate transactions or at least legitimate discussions or offers to actually move that pick. And that's the other thing that I wanted to get into is kind of forecasting what a class looks like, but also looking at what that looks like in the current dynasty landscape. And I want to do a breakdown on the 2024 class. And I'm sure there's more data that comes out. Jordan Backus is awesome. Uh, does his Devi and college football analytics on destination. has a ton of great information that he puts out every week. Our college football podcast uh, with Derek and Paul that comes out every Saturday night. Same thing, like a lot of good information about prospects. And that's just a tip of the iceberg. There's so much data out there, so much information out there on prospects. And then obviously Ray brings his own flavor to prospects where he doesn't look at it necessarily the same way that those guys do, but there's always little nuggets. And I think one thing that Ray is really good at, and this is just something that comes with the territory doing this for a while is being able to kind of spot some trends and embrace them and also change your process as you go, instead of saying, okay, I know the way there is no way the way today in a nutshell. And this is kind of what I want to focus the rest of the episode on the way today in a nutshell with dynasty is being able to read your league, being able to understand the economy in your league and being able to understand the currency or the assets or whatever is valued in your league. You want to figure out how to get that. What it does for you in your lineup scoring you points, that's a bonus. And you have to kind of almost follow the process of if I have enough of that, I will be able to set a competent lineup and it wins or it doesn't. Because as you see, the week-to-week game, the volatile, is this player going to play well? Is this player not going to play well? Will this player score a ton of points? Or will this player go off in my lineup? Or will this player disappoint? And that guy on my bench smashes That is the week-to-week volatility. That is the variance that we used to kind of say, you know what, that exists, but it doesn't reflect the market. But here it does. So I've been thinking more and more about this is what is the ultimate goal in Dynasty? And people will always clap back at me on X or on threads that I put out and go, isn't the goal to win? Isn't the goal to score points and win? Of course it is. But how do you get there? I'm more interested in the why. How do you get there? It's easy to say, yeah, well, you didn't get there this weekend because all the players that you thought were going to be good weren't. Or all the players that you built your teams around weren't good, aren't playing well. And then the next weekend, it could be different. So there's always like, yes, I want to win. Like, I'll give an example of the Justin Fields tweet I put out. I wrote an article last week about getting out on Justin Fields. And I really didn't say you have to do it today. I also didn't say you have to do it for this price. All I put in the article... And it go back, it's a pretty long, detailed article talking about 
Justin Fields and where he fits in historically as a passer. Essentially, the data we have says he will not keep his job long-term, which means eventually the floor will fall out from under him. But you have all these little mini seasons between when I wrote the article and when that eventually happens, if and when it does, you'll have all these little mini periods or pockets where you go, okay, I need to play the market there. But part of it is, hey, if I have Justin Fields, he's capable of scoring a ton of points. So the idea of it's just black or white, well, I want to win, so I want to score points, so that means I want to keep Justin Fields. No, actually the goal is to eventually get to a point where all the assets that I am holding at any given time are the ones that other people want, but in the meantime, they're also scoring me points. And how do I get there with the best bang for my buck? Meaning, how do I get as much production out of somebody like Justin Fields and still get out of a player that I don't believe long-term has the ability to hold a job as a steady starter, which eventually is going to impact his value. It already has. Only because you see, once a player has that stink on them to where people have made up their minds that they are what they are, they're not that good, they're not going to get any better, the situation's never going to get better, it takes a lot of time, and sometimes it's impossible to break that mold. So I know I'm rambling a little bit, but the interesting thing with Fields is you kind of already know how the league valued him. If you tried to trade him before this weekend, and I'm recording this late at night, so after all the Sunday games are over, if you tried to trade him before this past week, there were quite a few people that were, I'm just not interested. You can sit there and say, I want to buy low, I want to buy low, and this is what Ray and I are going to talk about on Destination Chill on Wednesday. I want to buy low, and the person that has him goes, man, I would love to sell, but I'm not selling at X price. So it just creates an automatic impasse to where the week-to-week game creates paralysis. You've heard Ray talk about paralysis before. It creates this paralysis where nobody really moves. Nobody is willing to budge. Everybody has a process. And the process is, man, I don't want to overpay in assets when I don't have to. I also don't want to sell assets when they're low because I think they might be able to go up in value and then I'll want to sell then. And that's the idea now. Justin Fields had a great game in week four. So in theory, I should be able to sell for more in week four if this is a week-to-week redraft mentality in Dynasty. Until we go out tomorrow or Wednesday or Thursday, go try to sell Justin Fields. And your market may go, well, yeah, I'm good. I don't really want to buy now. Because I know you're trying to sell for more than you tried to sell last week. But why would I be the one that buys this week when I could have bought last week for a cheaper price? Which just says they really have no conviction on the player. They're just always looking at the game as day trading stocks. Where can I be up constantly for the day, for the week, for the month? And in those periods in between, you know, every weekend when there is a set of games, I still have to set a lineup and try to score points. That is what Dynasty has become. And whether you like that or not, that is what the majority of Dynasty has become. And it's not incorrect. It is not a lack of player evaluation. It is a not a lack of being able to forecast the future. We've kind of already thrown our hands up and said, we're not good at forecasting what teams are going to do, what coaches are going to do what front offices are going to do. We can sit there and speculate, ah, cap space this, or coaching tendencies that, or this is the approach of the organization, or this is how it's going to play out on the field. And the reality is a lot of us are amateurs at doing that. A lot of us are only working with a very small subset of the data. 
And thus we're drawing conclusions on things where you go, we might only have 30% of the information that you would actually need to draw that conclusion. So essentially this has become a game of just day trading. Everybody starts with X amount of dollars and you want to see how much you can gain in the short term. How much value can I create on my roster? And then just by the way, every seven days we have to set a lineup and we go see if we can score more points than our opponents in this weird, like head to head setup game where I'm playing another person in my league, setting a lineup of 11 or 10 starters, whatever it might be. But as soon as that week ends, as soon as the week ends, we go right back to the day trading game. And this has nothing to do with, and I'm definitely going on a tangent here, but this has nothing to do with contending or rebuilding. Because if I'm sitting here thinking about my portfolio of teams and what majorly my goal is with my dynasty portfolio, of course it's to win. Of course it's to win money. But more importantly, it's actually to win, but also maintain the equity and the value of my team. And it used to be that you could do that over a long period. You could build, you could build, you could make a smart trade here. A month later, you make another trade. Now it is just a week-to-week rat race game where you want to be up at the end of every weekend. You want to have more wins, more points, and more value. And if you think about the cyclical nature, especially when we get into talking about war games and we see how different a week-to-week distribution of war looks like compared to a season you would go that's a maddening idea but that is what dynasty is today and so how can you diverge from that and that's why i think this 2024 class is going to be extremely interesting because i was going through some historic data and just thinking about okay the 2024 class is getting a lot of steam people are hyping it up now usually the hype from a class starts with who are the elite players in the class And then it just trickles down from there. If you have a couple elite players in a class, it's very easy for the rest of the class to be seen as better than what it is or worse than what it is. You saw it last year. You had a couple elite players at the top and then you saw the class kind of fizzle out a little bit and definitely hit a roadblock at a point where everything seemed like it just flattened out. Now there was some lesser than ideal draft capital some bad landing spots, sure. That's going to happen in every class. But really, the classes are defined at who's at the top. So 2024 is getting a lot of steam. You have a couple players that are projected to go extremely high. So I used Mock Draft Database, which hit or miss. It's updated, but it's not perfect. It definitely doesn't update as fast as college football week to week. It definitely doesn't update as fast as even the NFL does week to week. So it's a little bit behind in terms of maybe where a player may be projected to go or... You know, whatever. It's not as reactionary as what we're typically used to in Dynasty. But when you go through and you go, man, they have three skill players going in the top three. And it's not just there. There's a lot of places that have that same Caleb Williams, Drake May, Marvin Harrison, whatever order. It's usually Caleb one and then the other two at two or three. And almost always in the top four or five. Really just depends on what team is being mocked uh, to pick in whatever one of those slots. But even if Drake May isn't it, And it's just Marvin Harrison and Caleb Williams. We're talking about two first-round startup players or close to it that are going to be in the rookie class. So right there, it's going to create excitement that regardless of the rest of the class, it's going to create excitement for the class. So the 2024 firsts have gone up in value. You've already seen, uh, this is something that I've started doing, as I said earlier in the show, is really tracking where all of my teams stand week to week. 
all play record, potential points. Where am I in the standings? Looking at that relative to the distribution of the rest of my league teams in Dynasty Daddy, just to see like where am I at from a total asset standpoint, and really pick out those ones that just don't have it. Don't be afraid to identify those teams earlier than later and start pushing to the bottom. Because in a lot of leagues, what I've noticed is I go, man, that's a seventh or eighth place team that I have. And then I look and I go, the top two picks are already spoken for. The team's been planning on it. And you're seeing that become more and more common. Remember I did that episode back in February around uh, Senior Bowl time. It was right after the Senior Bowl. And I talked about the, the new savvy move in Dynasty is to be able to forecast a year ahead of the teams that are planning, even though they may not know it, the teams that have the roster where it's going to be very easy for that team to go, you know what, I'm playing for the future. And even if it's not the clear 101 where the person is just tanking, 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 and there's no chance that that pick is going to be lower than the 101. Like it's locked in. You can just tell. But sometimes there are those teams that end up in the top two, top three, top four. They just don't know it yet. And those savvy trades where maybe you can give up just a little bit of leverage, you give up an extra piece, but you end up masking a deal where maybe you swap a first and you give back another piece. On the surface, you go, wow, you just got leveraged. Until nine months from now, it's the 109 and the 103. And what you gave up on top of that 109 just to swap back when neither team knew where they were going to stand and neither team had committed to a direction, you ended up smashing that deal. And really that to me, I found is the only way to get potential high first round picks. Sure, you can go pay for him. Sure, you can say, hey, I really, really want to get a share of Marvin Harrison Jr. I'll give you Chris Olave in a first. Okay, sure, you can get the pick. But what are you doing when you make a deal like that? You're obviously giving up the leverage, right? You're losing that day trade value. You're losing that game that we talked about. And you're definitely losing especially when you're trading for a future pick for a player plus you are losing the ability of the week to week game to set your lineup and score points. So that's been tough for me to stomach. And as a portfolio player, I'll be honest, I am not usually that convicted on players. I'm definitely not convicted on a lot of prospects. Meaning if I have Debbie shares of some of the players that I'm going to talk about here in the next segment, I'm trading them. I'm willing to trade them on the fact that I think the community has started to really prognosticate and forecast player prospects more so than they have before. So they immediately go, wow, I see that Malik Neighbors is going to be a first-round pick. So he's already valued as a first-round pick. The realization doesn't really hit, except for the fact that that's one individual player. That is not the same as a random future first, or even a late future first. Even if you say he's going to be the fourth receiver drafted, and he's going to be a late first-round pick, that's not the same as trading a late first-round pick for a player. It's different. Trading Malik Neighbors for a player or a late first-round pick and a player, it's not the same, even if you think that's the player that's going to occupy that slot. So it's interesting when you look at that that I think to get some of those picks at the top, there is no other efficient way to do it other than try to mask those deals a year ahead. It may be too late now, but even right now, it might not be too late because there are teams that I look at and I go, wow, they're two and one. Maybe they're even three and one after they win their game this week. But their all play record is around 500. Their potential points, if they fall out of the playoffs. Now, this assumes that your league rewards draft picks based on potential points. If it's on standings, if it's a lottery, like you have to figure out those ways of how you want to attack playing for draft picks. 
or making those trades based on your system. But if it's potential points, there are teams I see where I go, wow, that is two, that is a team two losses away from going from right now would be the 109 because they'd be a playoff team to it's the 103 based on potential points. And that's the kind of bet that I want to make because I have to make it before I have to pay full freight for that pick. Because back to that show I did in February, the gap and go to keep trade cut and look this up. Go to keep trade cut and look at the difference between the price on a early first and a mid first and a late first. And go look at the prices of the players that were in those slots. Now, whether those were correct in May, that's not what I'm saying. But the difference between the high first and the middle versus late first is way more different than it was. People are smarter being able to forecast where a pick is. I have definitely heard more in the last year or two. Yeah, that looks like a late first. Yeah, that looks like an early first. I can't trade it away. Like people understand that now. There is really no ambiguity on picks unless you are fishing in the middle, which means sometimes you have to mask those deals and go, you know what? Yeah, this could burn me if I give up my first for someone else's first. And I also throw them in a receiver that they can use. Jacoby Myers or someone like that. On the surface, you go, that's not really a great deal unless it ends up being favorable for you from a pick perspective. And the reason I bring that up is because I don't think there really is a way to play on the psychology of people's thoughts on the class any better way than doing that. And looking at the prospects, which I'll do, I'll do a real quick breakdown of this year's class according to Mock Draft Database. And I'll just look at some historical data as to what I think the landscape is going to look like next April before the draft, right before the draft, and then after the NFL draft. Uh, I believe it's the third week or third or fourth week in April. It's a week before it was this year. Uh, but as soon as we get to May, how people are going to be behaving regarding these picks and regarding this class. So I'll come back. I'll go through that data. I know this was like 28 minutes of just me kind of rambling, but sometimes after a long day of football, I'll just be honest with everybody. After a long day of football, I just want to get in here and just talk what's on my mind. And I've been thinking about this topic all weekend as I watch college football, as I've seen how people are behaving in leagues where maybe I even identify that, hey, that's a league where I need to try to get to the bottom, or that's a league where I need to go buy, and I'm willing to make a bet against my own pick. I just see how people are behaving, and it just feels like it is either a apathetic game where people are already committed to being at the bottom, they've tanked, they've already been tanking since last year, or it's just this day-trading rat race, which makes it really, really hard to focus. And even I went into last week and said, you know what, I'm going to focus on these three or four teams and that's how I manage my portfolio. I find three or four teams a week that I want to work on, especially the ones that are kind of in the middle. And I'll go attack those and see what I can get done. And a lot of times I get them in a place where I feel real comfortable where they stand. And then I don't have to do as much work on that team week to week. But I just found that it's very, very interesting, the distribution of how managers are behaving. And then you have the whole other sector. If it's a really active league, the, the whole damn league is a day trading dynasty league. So very interesting. I'll come back. I'll go through the 2024 class with mock draft database and just talk a little bit of how I think the, the forecasting of these picks uh, is going to shake out and how it's going to be viewed, not just the class, but the class relative to the whole dynasty market next spring.
now we'll move into our second part of the show, talking a little bit about the 2024 class and the current market. And it's not just the current market, but it's how people are going to react to the class next year and also how the picks are going to be viewed based on the landscape of how player positions are viewed in today's Dynasty game. And I think that's going to be the biggest thing for me that I'm going to need to adjust. Uh, my prior process has always been value running backs after a certain point because I've essentially just accepted that a lot of those picks are subject to variance and a lot of those picks are probably best spent on buying stuff during the season or I really don't want to draft the other positions. So it's almost by default what you have to draft is running backs. And you're starting to see that where that has maybe backfired a little bit it isn't even on the running backs that you drafted in that range haven't been good because there have been running backs that have come from that range where you go, they've been exactly what I drafted them to be bodies. Give me a spot start. Give me some sort of chip that I can use either to move around, either to do an anti-leverage deal, package in a deal to get something else or just play when I have the availability to play them or when they're available to play in a given week. So the whole point of why you would draft running backs in those later rounds is for that reason. You're essentially just kind of giving up on that value, saying I'm going to work around my roster construction, and the easiest thing is to draft running backs in those ranges because, well, I don't want to draft anything else. I don't want to draft a third-round quarterback. I don't want to draft a fifth-round receiver. I really don't want to draft a bunch of tight ends because tight ends are so hit or miss, and there's a lot of formats where they just don't even matter. But where that's changed a little bit, and maybe I have to reassess my process a little bit on this as well, is – do you really want to have such a rigid approach versus try to evaluate the market and just figure out how people are going to view the individual picks, the individual class, and then the players that are in those subsets of ranges? Once we get landing spots, draft capital, and there's an ADP that starts to form, you then have to start analyzing those players in tiers or in buckets and go, outside of a certain range, and I'll get to those ranges here in a second, of maybe what I would have looked at couple years ago versus now and how it's different, but also looking at those ranges outside of maybe just the top 12, 15 prospects, everybody else should almost be the day trading game, not positional value, none of that. It should be, how can I maybe forecast an outcome and it turns into a day trading game? And that's where maybe I have to reassess getting back into some individual player profile takes. And it's not even about their production or their athleticism. It's more about those factors or those attributes that will make other people into those players. You can always say, well, this player, man, all they need is one big play and everyone will love them. And that's because everyone had a high opinion on them in the first place. Then there's others where doesn't matter what they do. The opinion will never be changed. And that matters. That matters more today than it ever has in a game where public perception and the perception of your league market and your economy matters way more than really any pick probably outside of the top 10 or so in your rookie draft, maybe outside the top 15. But anywhere past that, the biggest thing that I want to draft is for value. And when I say value, that's not positional value. That is, what can I exploit on the market for whatever reason? There could be 50 reasons you could say, I might be able to exploit this, but why? Be able to run that assessment in your head and say, is there a way that in my league with the managers that I play with, based on where they're getting their information, 
is this a positive trade for me to make? Is this a positive move for me to make? When I say trade, I mean like the day trading game. Is this a positive pick for me to make? And don't be looking at that second round pick, the mid second round running back that you draft. The analysis shouldn't necessarily be does that player get on the field? Do they have a good profile? It should be all of those things. It should be how many outcomes could happen to where that's the pick that my league will want. And that's where I kind of look into this data. So I went back through and I just looked at the last five years because I think it'll highlight this point and why I think especially the values of picks from 1 to 12. So we'll just talk a regular 12-team super flex league. Why two things have happened. One, picks from 1 to 12 have vastly changed in value, even if they're perceived to be random, even if they're perceived to be a year or two out. The difference between 1 and 12 and even 1 and 6 is drastic. And that's just because of the reactionary nature of the market and how much higher value young producing players have than just young players with good profiles. So that's the first thing, is just understanding the delta between picks 1 through 6, 1 through 12. The, the gaps are very wide from 1 through 12. The second thing is, second round picks, they matter to an extent, but when you start looking at some of this data and you go, man, do they really? Especially in today's running back market. And hear me out on this. Do I think second round picks matter? Yes. I did the show earlier this spring talking about war and talking about where the, the draft pick war or warp kind of falls off. And my takeaway was it's usually in the early part of the second round, like 203, 204 range. And people are like, man, that's kind of crazy. That's early. You're basically saying none of the picks outside of that range have any value. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you're just taking the outcome of picking a player and ending up with positive war at that pick, that's probably where the cut line is. That's probably where the equilibrium point is. That does not include what you could do with that second round pick or more importantly, what you could do with the player that you drafted. That's not being taken into account in the value of that pick. So of course, when I see that number, I go, okay, let me compare that data to the rest of the league and how the league market values second round picks just in dynasty in general. And the overwhelming majority would say, man, they would much rather pick a player at that spot than they would sell that second for a five week spot start running back. Now, whether that's a good bet or not, whether the running back ends up being good or not, doesn't matter. But the idea of, man, man, I can get five starts from Zach Moss for that mid-second. People think you're crazy for paying five a mid-second for Zach Moss for five starts. But then you look at that word aid and you go, well, okay, what is your plan with that pick? And how does your league value that pick? So looking at this data, just going back the last five years, so I really cut off the picks because outside of the top, let's say 100 or so, it's really all over the place. Even even the top 100, some of these projections you can just tell by mock draft database are not great. But if you just take dynasty relevant players, so quarterbacks in round one. So I'm just going to say round one for now. I know there's a phenomenon of where more teams are willing to kind of gamble on mid-round quarterbacks and they may get a small opportunity to start. We've seen it with a bunch of guys like Purdy and Howe and Ritter and who knows how many others this year may get a shot. You know, even if it's only for six games. You know, how do we know that doesn't parlay? Davis Mills is another one. How do we know that doesn't get parlayed into a one-year window? And again, if it's a one-year window, all that matters is the day trading game, right? The market value. Forget about 
what the outcome, forget about what the points are. It's hitting on that asset. But I didn't include mid-round QBs just because it's really, really hard to forecast. So I just focus on round one quarterbacks. So I did round one and round three running backs for now. So we're going to keep that as the cutoff point. So round one QBs, round one through round three running backs. So day two, first and second round receivers and first and second round tight ends. And that is my cutoff for what I would call would be dynasty relevant players that will actually have some value in terms of where they would go in, in drafts. Outside of that, yeah, sure, you're going to get some players people like. They're going to go higher. You're going to get some players that people hate. They're going to go lower. But just looking at that historically and go, how many of those players are there? Quarterbacks in round one, running backs on day two, so round one through round three, wide receivers in round one or round two, and then tight ends in round one or round two. And over the last five years, there's been on average about 23.2 across the last five years. So we're talking about two rounds worth of picks, right? So in your 12-team Superflex, 23.2 players on average fit that criteria. So essentially, that says we're going to get about two rounds worth of good dynasty assets. Now, some will be, some classes will be better than that. Some will be worse. You know, for instance, 2020, we had 27. 2022 and 2021, we only had 21. So it can vary a little bit. It can vary where it goes, you know, a couple picks into the third. It can cut off at the mid-second and kind of really falter right at that point. But the idea is right around two rounds worth of picks, 23.2 players on average going in that range. Now, you cut that a little bit slimmer and go, okay, this is a true reflection of probably how players view picks now versus where they maybe did a couple years ago. And it's more of like, who were the first round picks, right? Like who were the players that go first round quarterbacks, first and second round running backs, and then first round tight ends and first round receivers. How many of those are there? That's going to really speak to me as to what these picks are worth. Everything else, especially as more people get smart with their second round picks. And I can also argue when you get to the second round, part of what you're valuing is not so much the position. It's more so the asset, the player. What can this player be? I don't even care if the player is that good. What can the player be? And some of that is just name value and popularity. So when you take that criteria and you cut it down, you're looking at only an average of 12. And that number is actually being inflated by 2020, which had 16 of players in those ranges. So basically first round picks and then first and second round receivers. So on average, you're only at 12. So again, that's cutting the player pool down from two rounds to one round. And I think that is more of a reflection of what Dynasty is today. Now, there's going to be classes that you'll say, man, those early seconds are worth something. Sure. But largely, when you get to the second round, it is going to purely be based on the opinions of players. Who can I draft that there's a path that I can day trade for more value later? Pretty much, that's the agenda. And I'm moving away from the draft any running back. Because if you think about it, even if the running back from a roster construction strategy is correct, taking Roshan Johnson over Marvin Mims, you know, taking Chase Brown over Puka Nakua, and I know those are a little bit cherry-picking examples, but even if roster construction said to do the former, did the market say to do the former? Could you see the path, especially if it's a running back versus a receiver, and you know you're doing it, 
despite the market on running backs that you know is already so volatile. And that's what makes this strategy so challenging and why I've shifted away from the draft every running back with a draft pick unless you've exhausted the chances of being able to get running back production when you need it for those picks before you have to actually draft a player. And that's why you can go slimmer at running back in a league where there's more of an open market because, hey, there will be a running back that will get sold for a third that you can start. There will be a running back that may start for a month that you can get for a second round pick. And in those leagues, you really probably don't want to be making picks in the second round or in the third round. So it's interesting when you look at this class. So for next year, if you look at the players that fit the first criteria, so round one QBs, first through third round running backs, first and second round receivers, and first and second round tight ends, you have 22 of them. Four QBs, seven running backs, nine wide receivers, and two tight ends. Okay, 22. Pretty much about average. Slightly below average, but let's just call it average. It's very close to what the historic average has been over the last five years. But then you chop that down and you use the second criteria, which is first round quarterbacks, first and second round running backs, first round receivers and first round tight ends, 17 players, four QBs, five running backs. And I go, people, oh, it's a weak running back class. Hey, the mock draft database has five running backs essentially all going in the second round. So not first round picks, but second round picks. Take that for what it is. You know, you might hear second round running back and you go Zach Charbonnet. Okay. Then you go Devon A. Chain. Okay. That makes my ears perk up a little bit. Roshan Johnson. Okay. Maybe I'm a little excited about that. Tank Bigsby. Okay. Not so much, but you get the idea. You can put names to the rounds and you go, okay. Yeah. That's how a second round running back makes me feel if I'm on the clock at this pick. Right. So five running backs, six receivers in the first round, which that's the number that's boosted it up. Four quarterbacks and six receivers. Let's be real. If we get 10 quarterbacks and receivers in the first round, people will be going crazy over this class. And then you have to boot potentially a top five pick at tight end in Brock Bowers. Like, boom, right there. You can see where the excitement for the 2044 class is. And you can see why it's being viewed that way, not because of the depth, but because of pretty much the forecast that there's a whole first round worth of players to draft. So it's interesting within that, and then you look at the positional breakdown and you say, okay, how are we going to view this class next year? Because right now, if you look at that data, you're you're trending to be better than it has been, quite frankly, the last two years. Because last year was 11, and then the year before was 10. So we did not have even a full round worth of, I guess you could call them, like first round worthy players the last two classes which is why it felt like when you got to that late first, you're like, man, I don't know who to pick. And everyone that picked in the late first this year felt the same way. You were hoping Jordan Addison would fall. You're maybe hoping that Zay Flowers were fall. And if they didn't, and it wasn't a league that valued tight end, you got to that 111 and you were like, man, who do I take? And I saw a lot of people going, well, I have to take somebody, so I'll take A-Chain. I have to take somebody, so I'll take Dalton Kincaid. I have to take somebody, so I'll take Michael Mayer or Sam Laporta. The names don't matter, but the point was, how did you feel on the clock? And that's probably contributing a little bit to why people are scared of late first. And I don't want to be the one that goes, I'll just go by late first because I'd much rather not use my first uh, in a way where I'm just picking at the end of a round. But this data kind of says, you know what? Maybe those picks will have a little bit more purchasing power if things stay as they are. But how is the 
people going to view the class? How are the people going to view the class as we get closer to the end of the season? And what is going to drive it? So you look a bit about keep trade cut right now. You have 20 wide receivers that are being valued in essentially the top 50 assets in Dynasty. And this doesn't include draft picks. So if you include draft picks in there, you're going to have essentially four rounds worth of draft picks in there. If you talk top 50 super flex assets, you have an early 24 first, an early 25 first, like those both hold top 30 value. Then you have the 2024 mid first, and then you start getting even to the 2026 early first is right outside of a top 50 asset. So picks make up three of that top 50. Receivers make up 20. And then quarterbacks right now make up 13. So as you can tell, it is a very quarterback and you can usually only start two quarterbacks in a league. So 13 relative to the other positions is pretty high. 13 QBs and 20 receivers. So right there, when you throw in the draft picks, you're talking over 70% of dynasty assets are made up at those positions. And it's exactly what we're talking about with this sample size. You're talking about 17 first round worthy dynasty players projected to go in that range in a current landscape where almost 75% of the assets are in that range. So how do we think this is going to play out next year? How are people going to view? And I'm, I'm asking this rhetorically because I kind of want people to continue this topic uh, and bring it up on our AMAs or bring it up on Destination Chill. Like I kind of want this to continue just a little bit for people to be thinking about this because what's the actionable takeaway? I always try to do something actionable in these shows. But right now where these picks are being valued, don't even look at, oh, I can get Caleb Williams. Oh, I can get Marvin Harrison. It should be more of how is the market going to view this class when those picks get there? How are they going to view the first round? How are they going to view the depth of the talent, where the positions align? If we get six first-round receivers and four first-round quarterbacks, that is going to lean in to what's currently being valued in Dynasty. We saw it a little bit this year, but we didn't get the receiver class. Whereas this upcoming year, if we get the receiver class and we get the quarter and forget about if the quarterbacks are good, not even saying that there's a good chance that in every class, you're going to get a quarterback that's bad, if not multiple, but forget that it's, do they have that short-term value? That's where I talked about going back to the day trading game. I really don't care who's better between CJ Stroud and Bryce Young from this year. If you had that pick and you turned it into one of those players, you had an asset where at least you had a really good window. Now, one has been really good, one hasn't, but that's not the point. The point is you already bought into a range that leans right into what Dynasty players are valuing. So it's just interesting to kind of look through this. I know it's really early. It's only October. There's a ton that still is going to happen in the college season, in the NFL season. It'll be interesting to go through the war data and say, here's where the positional alignment looks different through six weeks. How does that line up with what my roster construction recommendations have always been. Is it different? And I'll just say there's a couple things that I have been wrong about. And we'll talk about that on war games. There's a couple things that I really wish I would have leaned in even more hardcore than I did. Because as much as I may say, hey, do this. I'm not 100%. There are teams where I've built a little bit differently. Maybe either because I can't do it in that league because too many other people are doing it. Or... I just didn't have the time or I wasn't able to grind the edges to the point where it's exactly where I want to be. But there is some high-level takeaways that have been exactly what we've talked about for a while when talking about war, talking about warp, that if you would have leaned into it, you're probably smashing. Especially if you leaned into it 
And you're also benefiting from hitting the right players in those spots as well. I mean, the teams that are crushing it are the teams that didn't pay anything for tight end and have just been able to throw somebody in there and embrace the production. Same with running back. If you did that at both of those positions and you leaned into the dynasty market earlier than everybody else and went, you know what? Maybe this isn't a redraft league. It's a dynasty league, but I'm going to lean into that strategy even in dynasty and pump the value at those positions. And you ended up with an A-chain or a Kyron Williams or a Zach Moss or someone like that. You're just laughing to the bank. You, you've gotten more production already than you ever even dreamed that you would have to pay. Even if it goes to zero today, you've already profited a ton by building that way and already getting the points that you got. You should be so far ahead in assets now that maybe you go back to the pack and you go, you know what? I've tempted fate long enough. Maybe I actually go buy a running back at this point. So it'll be interesting to see where this class plays out. But right now, 17 players forecasted to be first round dynasty picks. Now, who those players are, do some declare, do some go back to school? You never know. There's always some of that attrition and the attrition works both ways. There's players that we're not even talking about that are not even in these mock drafts that'll creep up into that first round territory. And then there are players that are in there and you'll go, there's no way that player even gets close to drafted there or they don't even come out into the draft. So just interesting to look at this from a preliminary perspective. That's the reason why people seem to be so high on the 2024 class though, is because of that high-end talent that's basically pushed everything up, but then there's also the depth at the right places. There's depth potentially at QB, and there's depth potentially at wide receiver. And the QB class, I think, is going to be fascinating because I think we are at a point in not just Dynasty, but in the NFL, where teams are starting to realize, man, the costs of paying an elite quarterback, they better be somebody that we're confident building a team around year after year after year. And there are teams that have shown that you can put in a mid-tier QB that was a mid-round pick. Now, are they going to win you a Super Bowl? Maybe that's not the strategy, but you know what? There's a lot of teams, in fact, tons of teams that are paying their QBs a ton of money and they're not winning a Super Bowl. So maybe that's shifting a little bit. We saw a bunch more quarterbacks get drafted this year in those ranges than I even thought. You saw a bunch of quarterbacks go in round four, a bunch of quarterbacks go in round five, and it seems like a lot of them have already gotten opportunities. We saw that this weekend with Aiden O'Connell starting, and with Dorian Thompson Robinson starting, like we, we saw some guys get shots earlier than we ever thought. And okay, are those guys just spot starters for one week? Sure. But the idea is teams are willing to roll them out maybe a little quicker than they would have been before. So it'll be fascinating to see how this ends up shaking out over the next couple months, not just what actually happens, but how the perception of the picks happen. I would implore everybody, I'll end with this. Not going to plug anything. Go back to the beginning of the show when I plugged everything at the beginning. Look at your teams. If you have a portfolio, you cannot spend a ton of time on every team. You can maybe spend 15 minutes a week, 30 minutes a week max, and that's not going to be every team. Even if you're only in 15, 20 leagues, there's no way you can spend the prerequisite number of hours on each one of those teams every single week to grind the edges like you should. So use the quick hack of potential points, all play record, start, sit, start efficiency. You can see it on an MFL. If you really want to look at it, you can just go look at your points scored versus your potential points and look at it that way. But really kind of do that analysis and determine then by looking at something like Dynasty Daddy, for instance, how high or how low can I go? Can I catch the other teams that are at the top? Can I catch the teams that are already at the bottom? And really lean into the lane. This is especially important for the portfolio players that are listening to this. If you're in one or two leagues, I get it. 
you know, this isn't going to be a message necessarily towards you. It's going to be a lot harder in my two leagues to just tank for next year, right? Maybe one you do it, but it's going to be really hard to abandon those, especially if you're in the middle. But you have a portfolio, you have 15, you have 20, you have 25 leagues. Like you should be moving probably at least 20% of those in the opposite direction of trying to day trade, trying to win, trying to score as many points as possible. They should be going in the other direction because that's probably the best move for that team. So do that analysis, lean into it, and I'll just leave everybody with this. When you are trying to get there, don't haggle over a trade. I got offered a trade this week where I gave up Michael Thomas and Derrick Henry for a first. That was probably going to be a late first. And I sat there and I looked and I go, okay, I've probably tried to move these guys in the past on my trade bait. No bites. They haven't really been producing. Now, Derrick Henry had a good game today, but the idea being they haven't had a robust market. I get offered a first. I decline. My team's in the middle. My team could go either way. I'm actually going to win this week, and I have my own first. So that's one of those where like, I probably should be moving that pick more towards the bottom versus the top, but I digress. But I turned down the deal, and I thought more about it, and I reproposed the deal. This is just shows I make mistakes too. I got offered a random first for both players. I got greedy. I tried to ask for a second, declined, tried to ask for a third person sat on it for a little while, declined it. So then about three days later, I go back and I offer the same trade. Cause I go, you know what? I'm ready to push my team towards the bottom. Haggling over Michael Thomas or a third or a third for a second. I tried a bunch of different variations of trying to just squeeze a little bit more value out. And I go, you know what? What am I doing? My goal was to push this team towards the bottom, to end up with the 102 or the 103 and not the 105 or the 106. And I didn't have that in perspective when I declined the first trade. Tried to get it back. And you know what? The manager came back to me and said, you know what? I'm going to hold off. Probably meaning that as soon as I put those players on the board, the reactionary person was like, man, I can go get them for one single first. Let me try it. And then, of course, I decline the trade. And then I come back three days later and I try to get the same deal that they offered me. And the response was, you know what? Looking at things a little bit deeper, I don't need to give up my flexibility just yet. So it wasn't a no, it's never going to happen. But it was right now, it doesn't make sense to do this. And that tells me that I missed an opportunity because I should have taken that deal because it's not just what I got back in the trade for Derrick Henry and Michael Thomas. It was what else could I have gained or what else would I have done? And that's a league where I actually am going to win this week. My potential points are probably going to go up a little bit. And maybe I'll even sneak into the playoffs. I may be like the sixth seed after this week. And it actually caused me to have a little bit of paralysis. And I didn't make the move, which means I didn't make all the other moves that I should have made. I probably set a lineup that was too good. Didn't shed a couple players that I probably should have gotten rid of. And boom, I paid for it because I got a little bit too greedy. And that it may end up costing me two or three draft slots for Michael Thomas for a third round pick. So you look back and you go, push the chips in the direction that you need to go. And understand that part of what you're getting back in the trade, even if it feels like, man, I'm selling low, I'm selling at 80%. Part of what you're getting back is that value you gain, that extrinsic value of pushing your team in the direction that it should be going. That is value, especially if you can help your own draft pick and especially if it can help you get a couple other deals done. Because people see a deal like that in the league and they go, wait a second, you're blowing it up. 
You just sold Mike Evans. You're selling Derrick Henry. You sold Michael Thomas. Okay, anything else on your team that I think you could be selling, I'm sending you offers. And boom, all of a sudden, you've gotten three or four deals done, and you're right to where you want to be. You can just sit back and watch that team kind of push towards the bottom and reassess it in the offseason. So lessons learned. Maybe we'll see if I can get that same deal done this week after Derrick Henry having a good game. Uh, but with that, I know I was kind of all over the place in this episode, but that's probably what a lot of these shows are going to be during the season. Just me getting on here and talking through what's in my dynasty brain. There's 50 ideas at all times, and I'm not the greatest at always having them in a concise, laid out manner. That's why I do guest spots on other podcasts where they come up with a show sheet or a topic and they're kind of able to reel me in. And then that's why we have trades in five where I can just kind of go off the cuff. It allows me to have a little bit of a balance. So some of these shows are really structured when we dive into some data and whatnot. And then some of them are just kind of walking through my thoughts on the class, on the market, trade strategies, et cetera. So with that, I'll go ahead and sign off. Uh, good luck anybody that needs matchups to go their way in week four. We'll be back with Destination Chill on Wednesday. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I do have to plug this. Trades in Five has our two-year anniversary stream on Friday night. So we're not going to be streaming tomorrow on Tuesday. We are going to be streaming on Friday, 7 p.m. to midnight. So another five-hour stream. There'll be some guests, be some prizes. There'll be some giveaways, all that kind of stuff. But we will be doing a five-hour live stream. October 6th. Probably should have got the word out at the beginning of the show, but I digress. Uh, but yeah, no Tuesday stream this week, but there will be a five-hour stream on Friday night, 7 to midnight Eastern time, October 6th. Happy two-year anniversary to Dynasty Trades in 5. With that, I will go ahead and sign off. Be chill. There's a rumor going down.